Good morning. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. This is Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Coming up, we'll discuss something most of us just want to avoid. That's heartbreak, how it plays out in our body and how to recover from it. With a journalist and former Boulder resident, Florence Williams. Her new book, just out today, is called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. First, we have a couple of science headlines. Namely, who can they count on to take care of them? A research team from MIT showed that babies expect people who share saliva to come to one another's aid. Their findings suggest that babies can use this cue to identify people around them who will care for them. The researchers showed scripted interactions involving human actors and puppets, two toddlers and babies. In one experiment, a puppet shared an orange with an actor, then tossed a ball back and forth with a different actor. After the children watched these interactions, the researchers observed the children's reactions when the puppet showed distress while sitting between the two actors. The children looked toward the actor who had shared food with the puppet, anticipating that person to be in a closer relationship to the puppet. This work suggests that saliva sharing, such as food sharing or kissing, may be an important cue that helps infants to learn about their own social relationships and those of people around them. Young humans are helpless. They rely entirely on adults around them for survival. An easily observed cue such as spit sharing represents an adaptive strategy for these nonverbal people to identify close relationships around them. This work was published last week in the journal Science. For that headline. Many people celebrate New Year's Day on January 1st, but did you know that today, February 1st, marks the Chinese New Year as well as Tet, the Vietnamese New Year? And could tomorrow's Groundhog Day, actually it's tomorrow, actually be part of an ancient New Year's celebration? Some bolder naturalists have opinions about the real start of New Year, plus how to celebrate it. Let's listen in. Light is returning, even though it is the darkest hour. I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to KGNU volunteer Elena Claver singing last December at the Winter Solstice Celebration of the Boulder County Nature Association. For many naturalists, the winter solstice on December 21st marked the beginning of the new year. But some naturalists believe the new year begins this week, especially with tomorrow's sunrise on February 2nd. Imbolc is the Irish word that marks the ancient Celtic New Year's Day. You might know the celebration as Candlemas. For a preview of Imbolc and Candlemas, Boulder naturalist Steve Jones, Ruth Carol Cushman, and Scott Sievers recently gathered to witness a sunrise. They chose a viewing spot outside. Scott Sievers arrived well before dawn and said this early in the morning. The air is very still. The air is very still. There's coyotes calling off to the northeast, probably in a grassy field. There's a hint of orange on the horizon. Naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman and Steve Jones arrived to see a pre-dawn star. No, it's a planet. There's Venus, and she's really high and bright. Yeah, it really looks like a planet because it's so faint there just above the horizon. It's almost like looking at a little moon. As for where these naturalists have gathered, 
Here's Ruth Carol Cushman. We're at the parking lot for the National Center for Atmospheric Research because it's the best place in Boulder, I think, to see the sunrise. You're looking right out to the east, and then you can turn your head, and there are the flat irons covered with a little bit of snow right now. These Boulder naturalists say any sunrise is worth a celebration. Steve Jones adds that tomorrow's sunrise is extra special. The sunrise is the most meaningful sunrise of the year because this is the time of my favorite holiday. And I think for my tradition, which is the Celtic tradition, the most important holiday of the year is called Candlemas. And on February 2nd, Celtic people and other people in other parts of the world celebrate the absolute return of the sun. You know, we've been through winter solstice. We saw the days beginning to grow longer. But it's on Candlemas, halfway between winter solstice and spring equinox, that Celtic peoples celebrated really the first day of the year, the true return of the sun. And it's such a glowing time of the year. People would light candles. They'd burn bonfires. They still do. And so this is a special time for me, a special sunrise. Here in the pre-dawn winter air, the naturalists notice a sparrow-sized falcon. Beautiful. An American kestrel is sitting on the snag here, and it's all puffed out. It looks like it's watching the sunrise. The kestrel is facing east, too. There's a coyote's. Well, the coyotes are yipping away, but these deer down on this hillside just don't seem at all disturbed. They're just calmly browsing on the hillside. Scott, I think it's one or two. It always sounds like five or six. Yeah, yeah. But our coyotes here in Boulder County don't form packs very much because they mostly hunt smaller prey. While the naturalists listen to the wild coyotes, they suddenly see a dazzling beam of light. The sun is just now hitting Bear Peak. We're not in it yet. We can't look over and see the sun, but it's shining on the snow on Bear Peak. With a beautiful soaring raven and the big silver moon right up above. Make safe our journey. You can honor the Celtic New Year celebration of Imbolc, also known as Candlemas, by watching the sunrise tomorrow morning, February 2nd. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. No one can hold back the dawn. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely I'll be so lonely I could die You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Oh, heartbreak. Elvis had his version. Many of us have had ours. Florence Williams, a journalist and author, has sure had a strong dose of heartbreak. It exploded when her marriage fell apart a few years ago. Basically, she was dumped. But as a science writer and a piercingly curious intellect, she learned not only to get beyond her heartbreak, but to understand why it hurts so much and how and where in her body, actually in her cells, this heartbreak was wreaking havoc. She visited with many researchers, including some here in Colorado. 
She had her blood tested for genetic markers for grief. She tried psychedelics, MDMA, and other forms of therapy, all the while seeking adventure and healing in the wilderness and in new relationships. Williams joins us from her home in Washington, D.C. to discuss her new book, which was just released today. It's called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Florence, congratulations. So great to have you back on the show. Hi, Susan. It is so great to be here. And I'm so glad you played the Elvis song. Perfect. <laughs> I know. It might be a little cliche, but everyone can relate, I think. <laughs> so take us to ground zero for starters. Let's follow the arc a bit. Just the seeds of this book, your marital collapse, and your heartbreak itself. Yes. Well, um, I met the man who would be my husband when I was 18. Seven years later, we got married. And we were together for 25 years until um, basically one day I learned that he was not really wanting to be in the marriage anymore. He wanted to go, he said, find his soulmate, who was not me. Ouch. That was a big ouch. Um, And, um, you know, that was that was kind of the beginning of the end. (laughs) I would say. And it was, it was a huge blow. I mean, it was a huge shock. It was a blow. I thought my marriage was pretty good. Certainly there had been a lot of great years. Um, and I was almost 50, had never lived alone as an adult. And I got just existentially freaked out on every level. So there was, you know, fear of the future. There was, you know, grief over this lost relationship. Um, and all of these heavy emotions that were really, I would say, new to me, um, registered in my body in, in these really surprising and unexpected ways. Yeah, so and, I'm curious that... That was like the beginning. Didn't, you didn't just wallow in this pain, but you mentioned the body. Like, you embarked on this epic quest to discover what the hell was happening to you physically and emotionally, of course, but down to this cellular fingerprints of heartbreak. Like, why does heartbreak... How does it come and actually cause this physical pain? And, of course, you wanted to know how to heal from it. So break it down a bit. Like where, where and how is it happening? Was it in your body? And obviously many people can relate to this. Well, I also did plenty of wallowing. <laughs> it's hard not to. Um, you know, I, I think most of us tend to think that that heartbreak is something we experience kind of in our heads, you know, in our psyches. Um, but for me, um, you know, as a science journalist, I, I kind of wanted to go beyond that to explore, you know, why I was feeling this in my body, why I was even getting sick. So, you know, I think symptoms that a lot of us experience during times of, you know, big emotional grief and upheaval are, um, you know, basically this, this sort of, your body goes into kind of a fight or flight because you're freaked out about your future. Um, and you're suddenly feeling very alone in the world. And so for me, I lost a lot of weight. I had trouble sleeping. 20 pounds, you said, and you're pretty yeah, I lost is. 20 pounds I did not want to lose. I felt like I'd been plugged into a faulty electrical socket, <laughs> you know, that like I was really, really anxious and um, sort of hypervigilant, but also exhausted at the same time. And then my, my pancreas started breaking down. And um, my doctor said, um, you know, you need to, you need to calm down. You need to like you start to sleeping again. You need to get better. And, and I started talking to psychologists and neuroscientists and immunogeneticists, one of whom told me, 
heartbreak is a hidden landmine mm. of human existence. And you've got to figure out how to get over it or you're going to spiral into death. I mean, that, those are the, the words that he told me. Well, type 1 diabetes and your levels really spiked. That could have been close to death. Yeah, I mean, um, it, so, so what happens to our immune systems it, it, when we're feeling lonely and rejected like this is that we put out more, we pump out more inflammation. Uh, and at the same time, we downregulate the genes that um, enable us to fight viruses. And, and this is um, something that is, is fascinating. It's the work of uh, Stephen Cole at UCLA, mm -hmm. who I reached out to early on. And he said, look, why don't you come into the lab and we'll look at your blood. We'll look at your immune system right now. We'll look at your white blood cells. And we'll check it six months from now. And we'll check it, you know, 12 or 18 months from now. And we'll see if you are actually recovering from heartbreak or not. Fascinating. And I'm curious. So you explore a lot about physiologically and otherwise what rejection looks like. You know, this form of heartbreak. And I'm curious because obviously it includes grief, but there's also the grief with depression associated with losing one's child or one's spouse or a dear close friend, for that matter, being the rejector versus the rejected. Could you tease out, or is it even tease out a bull, how <laughs> this difference... Yeah. I mean, so, so early on, I talked to uh, a biological anthropologist, Helen Fisher, who studies sort of the neuroscience and the neurotransmitters of love. And she's one of the few people who's actually sort of looked at what happens on the other side of love. And, and what she told me is, you know, we know a lot more about the, the people who get dumped than we know about the people who do the dumping. Mm -hmm. And she's put she's put the dumped <laughs> in brain scanners and has found that parts of their brains light up um, associated with physical pain. So, you know, we're feeling this sort of social pain in similar parts of our brains. Um, and also parts of our brains associated with yearning and craving and addiction. Because uh, many people who are dumped um, don't want to lose those relationships. And so um, they're still in sort of a place of craving for a long time. And, and our, our, our serotonin drops off, you know, our dopamine drops off, depression often kicks in. But so do a lot of other um, behavioral changes like, um, you know, vengeance and huh, sure. um, poor impulse control. You know, people who are re rejected by love um, sometimes get full of what she calls abandonment rage. Or, um, you know, they drink too much and they smoke too much and they, um, you know, they, they act out in sort of ways that are very uncharacteristic of them. And they get very sort of histrionic and operatic about their sadness. Boy, just such a message also to really look out for mental illness. I mean, before it becomes a pathology because it's a natural Well, and the physical illness. And the violence that we see happens because of this kind of response, not that they're necessarily intrinsically bad people. Yeah. And I think a lot of it does come back to this feeling of loneliness. Mm. You know, um, we know that lonely people from studies um, suffer much worse health outcomes. Um, they're 26% more likely to die early. Um, and they also sometimes act out. <clears throat> they some, excuse me. They sometimes sort of act out in ways that don't necessarily help them <clears throat> because they become more sensitive to rejection. And they also be, they sort of look more closely for threat in their environments. And we know this from rodent studies and also from people. Yeah. So did you discover, I know this is not 
precisely your case, but how does loneliness and grief, for that matter, play out when one is stuck in a relationship, in a marriage, say, long term, that's emotionally a dead end or a cesspool? Well, I think it, it can play out in similar ways. Loneliness? Yeah, I mean, certainly you can be in a marriage and be lonely. You can live in a city and be lonely. Um, lonely loneliness is a psychological and subjective state. So if you feel mm-hmm. like you don't have people around you who support you and who have your back and you don't feel safe, um, then you're going to have really similar responses in your nervous system. So uh, you're going to feel like maybe you're in a threatening situation. Uh, you'll have that sort of norepinephrine um, flooding your uh, bone marrow cells that then in turn make the immune cells um, to to sort of you know handle your current situation. And so we have these leukocytes and these monocytes in our immune systems that actually listen for loneliness. Mm-hmm. And when they detect it, they when they detect it, they pump out more inflammation, which can be a good response if you're stumbling through the jungle, you know, for a couple of weeks after you know you've lost your kin group or you've been kicked out. But it's not a good response for, you know, living in modern life over a long period of time. So we know this inflammation leads to a lot of chronic diseases. Yeah. So, so when does grief and for that matter, loneliness sort of slip from being a natural, certainly normal response to death, to rejection? But when does it become a pathology and how to know that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's still something that's studied. I mean, there's there's a condition called um, complicated grief or persistent grief disorder, uh, and uh, it's it's when the grief becomes so intense that you really can't sort of function and move on. You know, you perhaps if you've lost uh, if you've lost a spouse to death, maybe you still um, you know are overwhelmed by memories of that person uh, in a way that makes it hard for you to actually function. Um, and, you know, so it, it, I think it depends on the person, sort of when it becomes a pathology and when it becomes just you know actually sort of a normal attachment that you may still have to someone you loved. Yeah, we're going to break a bit for uh, those who are joining in. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show, KGNU in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, Nederland, and, of course, across the globe, if you're tuning in to KGNU.org. And for those who are joining in now, I'm talking with our guest Florence Williams, journalist, science writer, about her new book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. So let's journey to Colorado. I was really pleasantly surprised that there's such a strong kind of pervasive Colorado angle in your book. Take us to one of the labs. Well, you call it Heartbreak Hotel. That's what inspired me to play that bumper (laughs) music at at Boulder. And what are they studying and what have they discovered and how is it resonant with you? Yeah, I felt like the biosciences building at the University of Colorado is sort of a Heartbreak Hotel because there are a couple of labs there looking at heartbreak and loss and grief. Um, and I, I had a good time visiting the Prairie Voles well, in the who lab. Doesn't? Of... In the lab, they're like three hundred, right? <laughs> they're so cute. They look like hamsters and they huddle together um, in this adorable way. Just kind of slays me. Um, so I went to the lab of Dr. Zoe Donaldson. Uh, and she is uh, actually putting these uh, photo sensors um, in the brains of prairie voles to find out um, what happens to them when they are suffering from the loss of a partner. So first, she'll sort of mate them and they'll bond because prairie voles are 
one of the few mammals that really um, pair bond like humans do. And then, sadly, she'll split some of them up. So they go through little prairie vole divorce. Uh, and, and then she runs them through all sorts of experiments to see, for example, how long it takes them to form a new attachment. Um, if, if their mate is behind a door and they can press a lever <laughs> to open that door, how long will they do it uh, after that? after their mate disappears? How long will they keep pressing the lever? How long does it take for the acceptance of loss to set in? Does the learning last so long that it takes their paws off? (laughs) Some of them press that little lever for a very long time. (laughs) And what did they discover? And how, obviously, these are prairie voles or prairie dogs, I guess, as we generically call them here. Um, How is that known to be or sort of estimated to translate to humans? Well, um, one of the things she's looking at uh, and and other colleagues that do similar work is sort of um, how much stress hormone is the brain pumping out uh, mm. when we're faced with the loss of a, of a mate. And it looks like that's one of the pathways for, for distress is that um, when our mate disappears, um, our brain's put out a lot of like corticotropin and corticotropin releasing factor. These, these, this machinery in the little vole brains really gets going. And what, what to me was so fascinating about it is that it looks like heartbreak you know, sort of wired in to our brains mm. that we're supposed to feel it, that there's sort of an adaptable reason to feel really distressed when your mate leaves. And that is really so you'll wait around <laughs> for your mate to come back if your mate is just out for a long lunch. And oh, that's vol- fascinating. So you'll have enough patience um, to stick it up. Yeah, yeah, so you... <laughs> You'll, you'll have this sort of behavioral drive to seek that person again or seek that prairie vole again. But, but, but when it becomes a problem is when that your partner's actually gone for good. And then you're just left with this, you know, cycling torrent of, of stress hormones. And, and you don't have that mediating effect of sort of the love hormones like, like oxytocin to, um, you know, to reverse that stress. Oh, so intense. So take us to the other place you visited quite a bit and gave lots of your blood, both as you referred to before the baseline (laughs) and then 18 months later, Uh, what happened in the UCLA lab and then share with us a bit about this massive adventure you went on, on the river. Sure. So I, you know, I worked with Stephen Cole uh, at UCLA. I gave him my, my blood. These are not tests that you can do in your doctor's office, by the way. <laughs> Darn. They're, they're pretty obscure. He's looking at a suite of 200 genes um, that regulate uh, these leukocytes and monocytes in our, in our immune system. And for me, he said, yeah, you know, at, at time one, you know, some months after the split, you know, your, your blood really does look like the blood of a lonely person. Like your, your blood looks like it's pretty freaked out and it has a lot of inflammation. Um, and so he said, you've got to get better right away. Do what you can. <laughs> so then I, I visited a psychologist at University of Utah, um, Paula Williams, who said, yeah, you know, health outcomes after divorce are terrible. We know that you're at increased risk for all kinds of things, including 23% higher risk of early death, you know, <laughs> quite significantly increased cardiovascular risk, blah, blah. She said, but we know some people who are really resilient are the ones who are able to find beauty and to cultivate a sense of awe. And I really leaned forward in my chair when she said this because I like beauty. <laughs> I like nature. I like natural beauty. Maybe I could just go 
spend as much time as I can in the wilderness and looking for awe, and maybe that will help my immune system. And so that's what I did. I, I went for lots of walks, and, and I also went on a 30-day wilderness trip down the Green River in Utah. And, and we looked at my blood before and after that. Um, and then we also looked at my blood, you know, 12 months after that. So we sort of kept going with a bunch of these interventions to see if we could finally find something that was going to move the needle um, in my white blood cells. And it took a while. did what they find in your white blood cells and red for that matter after the 18 months after these great adventures or hard adventures or all the above uh, what, what did they show you seems like it was a little meh you were a little underwhelmed. yeah I mean it was really interesting I I as someone who's written the book the nature fix I was yep. really invested in the idea that this wilderness trip was going to heal me and you know, spoiler alert, it, it really did not. I mean, it, it helped in some ways, but heartbreak is a really tough, it's a tough nut. You know, it, it, there is no super simple magic bullet. And unfortunately, uh, nature is not that. So I think it helped me in a lot of ways. It helped me access, you know, my sense of bravery. It helped me access, um, I, I think, a, a sense of self-reliance. You know, I literally had to learn how to paddle my own boat now, having huh. never lived alone. Or and you've done alone. it a lot before, but you'd never literally paddled your own boat, right? That's right. I never spent a night alone in the wilderness. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, so I did all those things, but it didn't really calm me down because to be alone in the wilderness is not necessarily a relaxing state. You have to be very aware, hyper aware of your surroundings all the time. You know, there's, there's no cell phone, there are no roads, there's no one to help you if you, um, you know, break your femur. You have to really be very, very careful and alert out there, vigilant. So, so it, it was good in a lot of ways, but it didn't actually reverse my, my immune system issues. Um, and so, so then I did a bunch of other things and, uh, and eventually, you know, you'll have to read the book to find out what happens, but, but eventually my, my blood cells did improve and get shinier and happier. Yay. <laughs> well, so much more I want to cover and all the intriguing ways you went about finding or experiencing different healing approaches. Um, yes. That's it for now, perhaps on another one. But I, I love this emphasis from you, your own experience, but particularly from the science, that this healing power of awe, of beauty, giving a sense of agency and a sense of purpose and community, all factors in healing, right? Yes. Thank you, Susan. I think you said that really well. And I think that is, you know, sort of a final theme of the book, um, which is go, go seek awe. Oh, it's good for it. you. Thank you so much for joining us, Florence, and good luck on this day one of your book tour. Thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure. Take care. That was Florence Williams, journalist and author of the just published book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. For more information about Williams and her book and other writings, go to FlorenceWilliams.com. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Rosanna Longobetter. Thanks to Shelley Schlender and Beth Bennett for additional contributions. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. To find past episodes, you can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 99 
Eleven, for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.